good to be here with all of you this morning. Um, if you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus, chapter 3. Our text this morning is going to be um, Titus 3, 3 through 8. And uh, last week, Jeremiah taught the first two verses of chapter 3, where Paul tells Titus to remind the Cretan believers how they should function in society and how they should relate to the government as well as to unbelievers in general. And the standard that Paul sets here might seem impossibly high at first and might leave you wondering how in the world you could ever obey this standard. So our passage today is going to give us the answer to that. Before we can live out Paul's commands, the, we first need to be reminded of a, few, of a few foundational truths. So in this passage today, Paul is going to give us two reminders about the gospel that will transform the way we treat unbelievers. And I'll give you that again in a minute in case you missed it. Um, but this whole passage, including the, uh, the part that Jeremiah taught last week, is about things that the, the believers at Crete need to be reminded of. It's funny how our, our memories work. Have you ever walked into a room and um, you couldn't remember why you went there in the first place, and then you walked back out and walked back in again, hoping it would jog your memory? I was thinking about teaching this passage as I was preparing, and I, I got to thinking about how prone we are to forgetting not just mundane things, but also important spiritual truth. And it can almost be sometimes as though we have spiritual amnesia or spiritual Alzheimer's disease. And I looked up an article on Alzheimer's disease as I was thinking about it. Um, you've probably known people who have had the disease before. It's really common, and it's it's a terrible disease. It's extremely debilitating in many ways and usually eventually leads to death for people who have it. The, the disease has been around for a long time, but it didn't really have a name until a German psychiatrist, Alois Alzheimer, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right or not, but he discovered it in um, 1905, or 1901. Excuse me. Um, it didn't really get all that much attention then until... Um, later around the late 70s, when a bunch of activists started pushing it really hard to try to raise awareness that it's an actual disease and not just part of the, the normal process of aging. Even in its early stages, the disease can be extremely debilitating. Even when the, the person has most of their mobility left, um, they're still pretty nearly helpless because they don't have full use of their memories. They can be disoriented and irritable, and even dangerous to themselves and to people around them sometimes. So if you think about the, what great effects physical memory loss can have, just think about the damage that could be done by spiritual memory loss, and we're all prone to this. So to prevent this from happening, Paul's going to give us, as I said, two reminders about the gospel that will transform the way we treat unbelievers. The first one is a reminder of who we were before Christ. And that'll be in verse 3. The second one, I'll go ahead and give it to you now. Um, well, I'll give it to you again later. The, it's a reminder about how God responded to us in verses 4 through 7. So let's read the passage, and we'll start in verse 1 so that we can get the context. Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So the first reminder here in verse 3 is a reminder about who we were before Christ. We were idolaters. We were in total hostility to God and other people. Look at verse 3 again. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So if you'll notice, verse 3 starts with the word for, and it shows that everything that is following is going to give the basis for the commands in verses 1 and 2. So the first reminder is, like I've said, a reminder about who we were before Christ. So after Jeremiah taught last week uh, about how we're supposed to be submissive to the government and to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to not be quarrelsome but gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people, it might have left you thinking, how in the world could I ever measure up to this? You might have thought, I know I should submit to the government, but look at the kind of government that I have to live under. And I know that I should do good to all people and, and treat them with gentleness and courtesy, but you don't know the people that I have to work around. Or maybe it's not the people you work with, but it's the, the people you work for, your boss. Or maybe it's a roommate or someone in your class. Maybe it's even an unsaved family member, someone that, who is an unbeliever who just gets under your skin. Or maybe they mistreat you. Or maybe they even get under your skin and enjoy doing it. Whatever the case, I think that there's a huge tendency in our hearts to, um, to think that our circumstance is an exception and that God's asking too much of us with these commands. After all, we might say, if God really understood what this person puts me through every day, or however often I see them, wouldn't he be willing to just cut me a little bit of slack in the way that I treat them? Well, just in case you're, you're tempted to feel that way sometimes, and I'm sure we all are occasionally, but just in case you're tempted that way um, about someone in your life or about some group like the government or whoever else, let's take a look at our state before God saved us. If a certain person in your life is just extra difficult for you to love, Paul's about to show us that we were all just like that person. So in verse 3, Paul gives us a reminder of our rap sheet before salvation. You've probably heard the, the uh, saying, this guy has a rap sheet a mile long. Well, that was all of us before we were saved. I think that a big temptation here is to refuse to believe that we're really as bad as Paul says we were. After all, 
We might think of all the nice things that we did for people before we were saved. Or maybe some of us lived very moral and upright lives, at least on the surface. Maybe we never drank alcohol or watched R-rated movies. Maybe you didn't lose your temper very often. Maybe, you, maybe your friends and your family thought extremely highly of you. Maybe you were always going out of your way to help other people. But what if people could see the motivations behind your actions before you were a believer? What would they really look like? What would the overall portrait of your life look like if we could see under the surface? Would all your nice deeds really look all that nice if we knew the motivations for them? Would God be impressed by your righteousness, your self-righteousness? Paul's going to show us that underneath all of the external show of righteousness that we may have presented before we were saved, our hearts were really a cesspool of evil. Look at how he describes us. For we ourselves were once foolish. According to Bill Mounts, this word foolish is used in reference in the New Testament to a lack of spiritual understanding. It's the word Jesus used in Luke 24, 25, when he was talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when he said, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's when he was telling them um, about the, the scripture, and they were, they were telling him about all the events that had happened lately before they recognized who he was. And they just weren't getting it. It wasn't clicking. Well, before we were saved, we were all like that. We were, we were not able to properly understand spiritual things. And we were far worse than these disciples. And sure, we may have been able to rattle off a few Bible verses, and maybe we could understand them at some level. But we couldn't truly understand until God opened our eyes, just like he did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Next, Paul says we are disobedient. The same term is used for the false teachers in Titus 1.16 that Paul's been talking about. But Paul's saying here that we were once all that way. We were all disobedient. It doesn't matter whether you were openly rebellious or whether you were always, quote-unquote, the good kid. Deep down in your heart, you were just as rebellious as anyone else that you can think of. We may have put on a good show of obedience, but we were all disobedient and rebellious at heart. Next, he says that we were led astray. This means to be deceived or misled. Gordon Fee thinks that this means that, uh, that it's speaking here specifically of being deceived by Satan. Whether it means that or whether it just means that we were fair game to all sorts of deceptions from the world and from our own sinful flesh and from the devil... Um, the point is the same. We, just, we didn't have spiritual understanding, and we were vulnerable to all sorts of lies and deceptions, and frankly, that was what we wanted to hear. It was what we wanted to believe. He also says we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. The word for slaves here, it's actually not a noun in, in the Greek in this passage. Um, it's an active participle, and... Whether that means anything to you or not, it implies that we didn't just have the title of slave. It's not just what someone called us. But we were actively engaged in serving these pleasures like a slave. Our own lusts and passions ruled and dominated us. And we were willing servants, doing whatever they directed us to do. Paul shifts focus now, though, 
not just to, to what we were like before salvation, but how we interacted with other people. He says that we are passing our days in malice and envy. Notice that he doesn't just say that we acted this way occasionally. No, he says this is how we passed our days. This is how we lived our lives. This is how we spent our time. This is what our lives looked like. This is what the life of an unbeliever looks like. They may do all sorts of kind things for people, all kinds of philanthropic deeds and all kinds of of charitable activities that may seem on the surface to, to be, to look like genuine love, but the inner motivation of their heart is wrong. It could be from pride or, or um, wanting to salve their conscience or whatever else, but they can't really love people because they're too busy, busy harboring malice and envy toward others. It's what we were like before God saved us. We held grudges. We took offense. We compared ourselves to others and we wanted what they had. But there's more. We were hated by others and hating one another. Still in verse 3 here. Different versions will translate this slightly different ways. The ESV says hated by others and hating one another. Some other versions may say hateful and hating one another. So it's either that we were hateful and hating one another, which is basically two slightly different ways of saying the same thing, or we were hated by others and hating one another, showing that it was mutual hatred. But either way, not only did we fail to love people the way we should have, but we actually hated other people. And for some of us, that's really hard to get our minds wrapped around. Maybe we don't feel like we hated people before, we, before salvation. Maybe it seems like we were actually pretty loving to people most of the time. But no, before salvation, we didn't really love people. We may have had an emotional connection or an emotional affinity toward people, but we couldn't love people in the right sense. Before we were saved, we didn't love people, we just used them. So now think about that unbeliever again. The person that's so hard for you to love, the person that makes you want to pull your hair out sometimes, whether it's a coworker, a classmate, your boss, whoever else it may be, are they worse than the description here that Paul gives? I think probably not. So the next time you're tempted to be impatient or resentful toward that person, just remember that you were once just like that person. And sure, maybe the details are different, but the heart behind it is really about the same. So that was the first reminder about the gospel that will transform the way we treat unbelievers, the reminder of who we were before Christ. The second reminder is, is um, a reminder about how God responded to us in spite of all that. So Jeremiah showed us last week how we should treat unbelievers and the government and society. And today we're looking at why we should treat them that way. The basis, as we've already said, comes in the form of two reminders about the gospel. The first one that we just looked at is a reminder about who we were before Christ. So here we see the other side of the coin. Now that we've seen what we were like, now we're going to take a look at how God treated us in spite of it. In spite of who we were and in spite of what we justly deserved. So the reminder about how God responded to us 
in verses 4 through 7. God lovingly saved us, and he lavished his blessings on us, even though we deserve only wrath from him. So let's read verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the main idea in verses 4 through 7 is really just three words. He saved us. Everything else in these, in these verses is telling us more informa- information about how God saved us and about his saving act. We use the word saved a lot. I've used it quite a few times this morning already. But I think we can get so familiar with it and with the common baggage that people often load onto the word that we kind of forget and, and fail to realize what it really means. What do we need to be saved from, after all? If you think about it, people could give a lot of different answers to that question. And sure, we needed to be saved from sin and death and hell and judgment. But if you boil it all down, what we really needed to be saved from was God. We needed to be saved from God himself. We and our sin were on a collision course with God and his holiness. And there was no stopping it. It ought to shock us that there could be any possibility of our being saved after the rap sheet that we just saw of ourselves. It would be bad enough if other people knew what we were really like inside. But what about the fact that God is infinitely holy? That he's perfectly pure. And the fact that he knows everything that we've ever done. Not only that, he knows everything that we've ever thought. Every motivation. Beyond that, what about the fact that he owns us totally and that we are totally accountable to him? That ought to terrify an unbeliever. But look what it says next. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So when did this goodness and loving kindness of God appear? It appeared when he sent Jesus Christ to come and take our sin on himself and to pay the debt for our sin that we could never pay for ourselves. Why did he do all this? Well, because of his goodness and loving kindness. Because he chose to. The one and only reason that we are saved is the character of God. It's not because of our character. It's in spite of that. He's good and loving and kind. And the really amazing thing about this is that God doesn't have to treat us this way. He's under no obligation to love us or to forgive us. He would have been perfectly righteous if he hadn't. Think about it. He hasn't chosen to save and love and forgive demons who have rebelled against him. He doesn't even save all people. And he would have been perfectly just if he had decided not to save a single one of us. Yet he did save us. 
all those of us who have truly been converted are beneficiaries of God's extravagant goodness and loving kindness. And it comes through the unfathomably costly sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. Look back at verse 5 again. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Our salvation had nothing to do with our goodness or merit. In fact, it was totally in spite of us. It's so tempting sometimes to think that there must have been something salvageable about us. We're tempted to think of ourselves like something you might pick up at a junkyard or a yard sale. Those, those places are, are based on the, the idea that one man's trash is another man's treasure and that even something that's worn out and old can, can be repurposed and used and, and still has some value. And sure, it may have some damage, may need some repair, may not look new, but at least there's still a little bit of value left in it. That is not how we were. Not at all. Before God saved us, we were, stuff, we were like the stuff in the biohazard bin at the hospital. We were like the radioactive waste left over from a nuclear disaster. There's no salvaging that. There's no value in it. In fact, it has negative value. Though we were still creatures in God's image, for sure, and therefore we were valuable in that way, we were so distorted and perverted that Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteousness was like filthy rags. It was defiled and repulsive to God, totally unsalvageable, or at least it seemed that way. But look what it says next. But according to his mercy, the only reason that we're saved is because of God's mercy. Do you think very much about the fact that you're living every day in the mercy of God? Do you think about the fact that a holy and infinite God chose to take pity on you when you were a weak and rebellious creature and a sinner who hated him? How about when you sin now? Do you think of God like an irritable parent who's always on the brink of blowing up at you every time you mess up? Or do you try to find ways to self-atone before you'll come to God and ask for forgiveness? I know you would never say this, but do you operate as though you think that if God really knew what you were like, he would turn his back on you? (laughs) Listen, if God was really like that, he would have turned his back on all of us a long time ago. God is patient, and he's forgiving. He'll never give you the cold shoulder, no matter how sinful you are, if you're his child. But he doesn't just turn a blind eye to our sin either, and just leave us to flounder around in it. Look at what Paul says next. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He washes us, and renews us by pouring his Holy Spirit on us. God's Spirit regenerates us, makes us new creatures. And he's also at work in us right now. He's at work in you right now to continue to conform you to Christ-likeness. The very fact that you're sitting here under his word right now 
and listening to it is one of the ways he's doing that. So now we turn a corner, and um, up until now, we've been talking about something that took place in the past when, when God came and, took and sent Jesus to take the penalty for us, for us, and he saved us. But now Paul is going to shift the focus to something that's true now, but will come to full fruition in the future. So look at why God did all this. He says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So not only does God withhold punishment from us, it would be far more than generous if he did that, but not only does he do that, much more than that, he actually makes us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So not only is the courtroom sentence changed from guilty to not guilty, but on on top of that, he's granted us an incalculable inheritance. And it's from the very God whose wrath we deserve. That's grace. Romans 8.17 says that we're fellow heirs with Christ. Can you imagine that? We think of heirs a lot of times as an heir to a large fortune. You have a, a rich relative and they die and they leave you all their money. Think about the God of the universe giving an inheritance. It's not that he's died, but he gives an inheritance to his son who has perfectly pleased him and he's never failed. Can you imagine what that inheritance is like? It's a whole lot more than a whole pile of money. And we are fellow heirs with Christ because we are seen in him now through the work that he did on our behalf. And then Paul says in verse 8, he says the saying is trustworthy. So what saying? Well, everything that he's just been reminding us about the gospel, it's trustworthy. We can bank on it. We can take it to the bank and believe in it. He says, and I want you to insist on these things. He's telling Titus to keep the focus on the gospel and not to let the Cretans forget about or disregard it. We'll see next week, in the passage next week, that this is a contrast to the tendency of the false teachers to get sidetracked by secondary issues. And Titus could be susceptible to to going down those rabbit trails. But Paul's telling Titus to stay focused on the gospel. What's the goal of this focus? Paul says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So now we've come full circle back to where we were last week. Titus and the rest of us need to keep the gospel in full focus because it will give us the perspective and the motivation to be able to serve God by doing good works, which is what Paul has been teaching us throughout this whole letter. And in this particular passage, he's talking about good works toward unbelievers. So when we remember who we were and how God treated us in spite of it, totally in spite of it, it gives a whole new perspective to when we're tempted to be irritated at an unbeliever who annoys us or to hold a grudge because they've hurt us in some way in the past or to retaliate when they wrong us now. So think about the unbelievers in your life. It could be government officials, 
that you're tempted to get upset with to be coworkers, your boss, a classmate, whoever else. Can the people who know you personally tell that there's something different about you in the way you respond? Can they tell that God has changed you? Because that's the way you were. That's not how you're supposed to respond now. Because God has made you a new creature. And if you tend to forget these things and not act this way, if you can't say yes, people can tell there's a change in me. It shows that you need to be reminded about the gospel. You need to be need to be changed by it. So let's meditate on the gospel this week and let's ask the Lord to remind us of it and to change our hearts through it so that we can be a fitting testimony like we should be to the unbelieving world around us and to serve God by doing good works. This should be our our goal and our hope and our prayer and it's all by these motivations that, that Paul has given us, these reminders about the gospel, a reminder of who we were and how God treated us. So let's pray now and ask the Lord to, to help us live this out. Lord, thank you so much for your grace that you lavished on us. When we were sinners, when we hated you and hated other people, Maybe we didn't feel like we were that bad. But your word says that we were in our inner hearts, our motivations. We were a cesspool of evil. And Lord, I just thank you so much that you reached down into the filth and pulled us out. And you saved us. You poured out your love and mercy on us. Even though we didn't deserve it, we deserve your wrath forever, for eternity in hell. But you washed us and you regenerated us, you cleansed us, and you've lavished your goodness on us. The fact that we're sitting here right now and the fact that we're, we're hearing your word, the fact that we have the freedom to do it in our country right now, the fact that we'll probably leave here and go eat a meal, the fact that most of us are physically healthy and we live enjoyable lives. This is all your grace. It's extra that we never deserved. We still don't deserve. We could never earn. We could never merit it. But you've poured it out on us. We thank you for it, Lord. And we pray that you would help us this week to remember the gospel, to remember what you did for us in spite of what we deserved, based on your character, your goodness, who you are, just because you chose to bestow your love on us. And I pray that you would motivate us to treat other people the same way, knowing they're just like we were and looking to your example. And when we fail, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us and you would help us to get back up, to confess and repent and to keep going and to keep trying to do your will, to honor you, and to love unbelievers, knowing that they need exactly the same thing that we needed, mercy and grace. I pray this week that we would go out 
that we would be saturated in our minds with the gospel and that it would overflow and spill out on all of the unbelievers and the believers around us. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.